welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Peter Rosher, Global Head of Reed Smith's international arbitration practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Arbitral Insights podcast series. And I am delighted to have as our guest today, Professor Franco Ferrari. Hello, Franco. Hi, Gautam. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. And I'm delighted to be doing this podcast with you. I saw you most recently at an event which you very kindly chaired at uh, New York University, where you're a professor of law. You are very well known to many, many people, but I'm going to introduce you first of all, and then we can dive into the podcast because uh, I'm looking forward to to this discussion with you. So for those of you who don't know Franco, Franco is an incredibly interesting person. He is currently the professor, a professor of law at the Center for Transnational Litigation and Arbitration and Commercial Law at New York University. And um, he has taught many, many students who are now very prominent in the world of international arbitration and who sit as arbitrators. Franco joined the, the New York University Law School in 2010 and prior to that held uh, a number of very senior academic positions as professor of law at variously Verona University in Italy at Tilburg University and at the University of Bologna. Uh, Prior to his life in academia, Franco was uh, a legal officer at the United Nations Office of Legal Affairs, International Trade Law Branch from 2000 to 2002. And he also served on the Italian delegation to the United Nations Commission on International Trade Law known as UNCITRAL, from 1995 to 2000. Franco has been a prolific author of countless books and articles on the law of international arbitration and many other topics, including international commercial law, the conflict of laws and comparative law. He really is one of the most interesting people that I have met. And uh, if I tell you that he has a dish named after him at a New York restaurant. Some might not believe me, but it's true. And there is a restaurant, for those of you who know New York and know where New York University is, there is a restaurant just opposite Franco's office called The Red Feather. Uh, It's a very, very nice pan-Asian restaurant. And Franco is such an illustrious member of the New York community and a very, very good customer of that restaurant that the restaurant has named a dish after him called... (laughs) Franco Ferrari's chicken. So it's, it's and it's a very nice dish too. I've tasted it. So Franco, on that note, it's a delight to have you, and uh, I'm looking forward to our discussion. Let me first of all ask you, what first got you interested in law? I have to say, I uh, was interested in law since the age of twelve. I do not know why. Um, I was watching TV when I was still in Germany and saw something about the UN on the news. And I think that is what triggered it. 
I started to read a lot of books about the UN and um, that was it. I knew I had to go either through law school or political science and uh, I preferred law school. I wouldn't be able to tell you really why, but uh, I'm very happy I did. Well, we're very happy you did because um, you also, apart from your incredible work as an academic, you regularly sit as an arbitrator in international commercial arbitrations and investment treaty arbitrations. And we'll come to that in a minute because uh, I'd like to talk to you a lot about your life as an arbitrator. But just let's stick with the world of academia because I'm fascinated by this uh, because, as I say, I've got to know you and your work and your publications very well. You've written a great deal, but tell me, first of all, what excited you about the world of academia and has taken you from universities all around Europe and now to the US? I think academia gives you a lot of freedom that, in my opinion, even other legal professions don't give you. Um, I'm allowed and I'm actually being paid to write whatever I want on whatever subject I want. That is a freedom, in my opinion, that cannot be mirrored. And certainly, even if you are a lawyer, of course, you may have your views, but you have a client and you may have, and rightly so, to defend your client's views, even though you yourself may not be interested in. Academia is not like that. We all are allowed to teach what we want. Of course, we have to be responsible, but that's a different issue. But we are allowed to choose the topics we teach and write about. That, to me, is the most amazing part of academia, and there's no prize for this type of freedom. And you've written a lot of books over the years. Do you know how many books you've written, Franco? So, <laughs> written and edited, I think, 48. Yes. Wow, and you've obviously written hundreds of articles as well. Yes, I did. And now, in terms of the discipline of writing, I've, I'm always interested to ask academics this. When you have thought about what you want to write about, and if there's a book which you are authoring as opposed to editing, so you're going to be the author of that. Just tell us how you broadly go about structuring a book. Um, I mean, of course, every book is different, but what sort of process do you go through to go from the idea to the final product? So what I try to do is to basically get an outline, um, an outline that should allow me to see from the outset where I will be going and what I want to address at minimum, meaning there will be modifications I may add to it, but the outline should be pretty set when I start writing. It doesn't mean that the outcome is or will be the one I had envisaged when I started it. I wrote some books with an idea in mind and after doing research, Clearly, the outcome was opposite to the one I thought I would get to when I started out. Um, but yes, you have to think about the one novel idea you have. It has to be an idea that in the book is a red thread. So everything has to be measured against that one idea. Thank you, Franco. And so, you know, when you look back 
at all of the various projects you've been involved in, in writing uh, and in authoring articles, editing books and other publications. Are there any particular areas, if I was to say to you, what are your particular areas of interest? And I know you've written extensively, but are there one or two areas that you are really, really very, very passionate about? Yes. Um, One is forum shopping. Um, I say that because normally in the US, forum shopping is used as a bad word. Here at NYU, they allowed me even to teach an entire seminar over an entire semester, of course, on forum shopping. And um, that is a pet project of mine dealing with forum shopping, how it can actually affect even the unification of law and how unification of law does not necessarily affect the possibility to forum shop. In fact, um, I gave the Hague lectures on private international law, one of the special courses in 2019, and it was about this. The other pet area is somehow systemize arbitration law. Um, This is why recently, I think since 2015, I've published a lot of books and edited a lot of books with the help of incredible colleagues from all over the world, because I think that there is still room for this type of work, meaning there is actually need for systemization of arbitration law. And this is what I'm working on and have been working on now for nearly a decade. Wonderful. And apart from your very busy life as an academic, you regularly sit as an arbitrator, as I mentioned, in international commercial arbitrations and in investment treaty arbitrations. So tell us a little bit about how you first began sitting as an arbitrator uh, and, you know, Were there any people who were particularly influential in you becoming an arbitrator? So I started being an arbitrator in 1997 in an ICC case. And I was appointed by a very famous French colleague then. And I think the reason for that is that I had published already a lot of papers, even in French. Um, apart from English, of course, even though at that time I was living in Italy. And I think the the fact that I had written on international commercial law, conflict of laws, um, led to that first appointment. Um, It was a case involving two co-arbitrators who were amazing, very famous co-arbitrators. It went very well. And from then on, I had been, I have been uh, appointed on many occasions. I think that is also due to the fact that in Europe, more than in my opinion in the United States, council also turns to professors when they are looking for arbitrators. Um, in the US, less so, so more so in Europe, and where I'm still being appointed, and in Asia, where I'm being appointed very often. I have to say. And are there any? If, if if you look back on any of your arbitrations where you've sat, um, are there any particularly memorable venues for arbitration that uh, you've particularly enjoyed? Um, there are a lot of nice <laughs> venues. I had arbitrations in some amazing law firms, which, you know, one is normally not used to these places. I had arbitrations in incredible venues in 
in Latin America, incredible meaning in palaces, basically. These were not buildings, these were palaces. Yes, and um, these I do enjoy like everybody else. Um, it makes you feel like you're doing something important just because the venue is amazing and you respect the venue and you try to do your best. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm recording this podcast with you literally a couple of days before you're taking uh, a one-year sabbatical uh, from yes. your uh, from your post. And um, that's not to say that you're not going to be very busy because I know, and I'll be asking you in a minute to tell our listeners a little bit about what you're going to be doing, but I'm sure you're looking forward to having a change of scene uh, for a year or so. Um, so do tell our listeners what you plan to do in this year. So in order to um, comply with all the rules for sabbatical, I have to do some research and I will write, of course. I will write, there's no doubt about that. I'm also the editor of two concise encyclopedias to be published by ELGA, one on international commercial arbitration, um, which I'm co-editing with a colleague from Germany, Friedrich Rosenfeld, and one and um, an Italian colleague, Francesca Ragno, and one on the CISG. And that I'm doing with an Italian colleague, Marco Torsello. But that will not be the fun part, meaning that is work as I do every day. You're right, I will be traveling a lot. So I have hearings in different countries, actually, on different continents. My idea is to actually, yes, go to the hearing and then add at least two weeks in any of these venues, which include, for example, Buenos Aires. Mm -hmm. They include Singapore. I will go to Japan. I will go to Chile. And I will go, of course, to Paris and uh, Lisbon. So these are the places where I will be spending a lot of time over the next um, year. Well, it's going to be an incredible world tour, Franco. And I, and I wish you a wonderful... Uh, year it'll be an exciting year no doubt a busy year you know i know how busy you always are uh, but it's going to be a great uh, opportunity for you to mix work research and a bit of holiday uh, in these various places the interesting thing is that um, you're doing arbitrations um, all over the world uh, and before the pandemic we were all used to regularly having in-person hearings. Since the pandemic, obviously, and fingers crossed, we are over the worst of things now, and travel is now a lot more frequent and much, much easier. But we all got used to having remote hearings. And of course, you'll be aware that there's a campaign for greener arbitration. Uh, so to the extent that arbitrations can be done in a greener way, then that's obviously going to be uh, a good thing. So I wonder what your thoughts are um, as an experienced arbitrator. What's your impression about the relative merits of in-person hearings and remote hearings? So I'm not one to say that we should go back to where we were before the pandemic. Um, there are certain case management conferences. There are certain issues which you do not need to fly out for in order to solve them. I really do believe that. And in fact, um, when I say I fly a lot around, it is true for the hearings themselves. So not anymore for a, an issue to be dealt with on the procedure. No, this can all be done, in my opinion, online. 
So there's no doubt about that. I had had I have had over the last two and a half years also hearings that were virtual hearings online, and at least as an arbitrator, I felt it was okay. For example, you know, let's say you are the witness. I can see you on my screen probably much better than I would be able to see you in a room full of 25 lawyers. So that was not an issue. I understand that some lawyers say mm, maybe you do not have the feel for the room. This may well be. It is clear that when I'm online, I may not see the reaction even of my co-arbitrators. That is also true. But it has advantages. And I think the ones you mentioned that it allows us not to have to travel that much is an advantage. I don't think we need to and should not go back to where we were before. I'm okay and I like, of course, to have in-person hearings and um, looking forward to all of those I will have. But certain other issues we can deal with remotely and we should go on dealing with them remotely. Thank you, Franco. And, you know, one question, actually, that's just because our listeners, I hope they, I think most of our listeners will know these are not scripted um, discussions. These are very free-flowing discussions. One question I've never asked you, Franco, I'd be fascinated to know, is apart from English and Italian, and I think also you mentioned you've written in French, um, so apart from English, Italian and French, which other languages do you speak? No, I find this a very funny question, uh, Gautam. Why do I say that? Because clearly you do not hear my German accent in, when I speak English. No, I can, I can, because you mentioned that you lived so in Germany. Yeah. My native language is German. So I was born in Germany, even though I'm an Italian citizen. I was born in Germany and um, grew up in Germany for the first 19 years of my life. Only later did I move to Italy, to Bologna Law School, to study. So I know German very well, Italian pretty well. Um, English is the language I've been operating in for the last 32 years since I'm a professor. And French, I speak and write French and uh, Spanish. My Dutch is so bad that when I was a professor in Holland and had to learn Dutch, at the first faculty meeting when I spoke Dutch, I was told that I could speak in English. So that's that bad. I mean, I can read it, but apparently I can't speak it. Well, you speak more languages than most people will ever be able to. So, I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. Actually, you know, my, I, I'll tell you, my brother-in-law uh, studied in uh, Holland for, in the Netherlands for uh, a number of years, and he still speaks Dutch. And uh, he hasn't forgotten Dutch, even though he's been away from the, the Netherlands now for... 25 years he still speaks Dutch so um, anyway that's very interesting but I just had to ask you that question Franco because you are such an international man uh, that uh, I was just very very keen to ask that question so let me turn to uh, a couple of other things now if I may one of the big issues in arbitration be it investment treaty arbitration or international commercial arbitration is how we can do things to improve the process. Because whilst arbitration is undoubtedly the dispute mechanism of choice for international business and international transactions, it's not perfect. Are there a couple of things in your mind as an arbitrator uh, which you think we could have, which we could do 
to improve the process. Yes, there's something we should not do. We should not proceduralize arbitration. Proceduralized arbitration means we should not mirror the process used in litigation because that, in my opinion, is not beneficial to arbitration, makes it slower and so forth. I see that that is a risk. I say that that is a risk all over because some players, and I'm not just saying the lawyers, even some arbitrators, rely too much on the procedural rules of the seat. And when I say procedural rules of the seat, I do not refer, obviously, to the arbitration rules contained in some of the procedural codes all over. That is not what I'm referring to. But the procedures themselves, and um, that is not beneficial. I don't think it makes arbitration efficient, actually. It risks to bring arbitration more in line with uh, with litigation, which is exactly what one should not do. That's a risk, in my opinion. Yeah, and I agree with you, uh, because many years ago, I, I remember I was speaking at a conference, and someone came up with the word arbitration on the basis that arbitration should never be a hybrid of that and litigation. So I agree with you, and I remember that word arbitration from many years ago. And also, uh, sometimes it can be seen as offshore litigation, and it's definitely not. Um, so no, no, that's very interesting. And and where do you stand on things like because you, of course, uh, have the huge benefit of having a lot of experience from the civil law tradition, and your teaching, of course, in the U.S., which is you know much more familiar to a common law jurisdiction. What sort of issues do you think, I mean, are there any issues that have cropped up over the years where you found that civil law traditions have, um, if you like, not sat very easily with common law traditions? Yes, um, there are several of these issues. For example, the issue of whether you are allowed or not to prep witnesses as counsel. Um, in many civil law countries, you are actually not allowed to do that. The issue of whom you are allowed to call as a witness. Um, it may well sound strange to some civil law lawyers when you will call as a witness a CEO of the company that has an interest in the case, meaning either a respondent or is the claimant. There are certain issues in relation to procedure where the differences still can be felt. I'm not saying that, of course, civil law lawyers cannot do these kind of things. They have learned how to do these kind of things, but in law there may be differences. Um, when you talk about discovery, all of us, all of us, whether you're civil law or common law, have in mind you as style discovery. Is this possible or not? Um, of course, in arbitration, it should be possible under certain circumstances. We know the IBA uh, guidelines allow for some kind of discovery, even so it may well not be what we consider US-style discovery, because discovery exists also in civil law countries. But there are so many differences in relation to the issues I just mentioned that probably for civil lawyer, lawyers and common law lawyers, it took a while to speak the same kind of language when they were referring to one or the other issue. Thank you, Franco. And just before we so go into the last um, segment of the 
podcast. I wanted to just roll back what I said in the, the introduction that there are, I don't know anyone apart from you who's had a dish named after them yeah. in a restaurant. And I think that's an incredible accolade to have and a very fun accolade to have. And, uh, you know, and I, and for those of our listeners who don't know Franco, I can honestly tell you he's one of the most charming and fun people you could ever meet. He really is. Thank um, you for that. Uh, you know, apart from his incredible legal brain, he's also an incredibly sociable person. So, but tell me how that restaurant became um, such that they named a dish after you. Was it just because you go there so often and that was your favorite dish? <laughs> so let's put things in perspective. I may have a dish called after me, but there are people who had a schedule, Redfern schedule called after them. So, you know, it just speaks about how often <laughs> I eat there and um, doesn't say anything about my qualities as a lawyer. Um, so I do eat there very often and apparently always the same dish. Yes. And, and I can tell our listeners it's a very nice dish. I've tried it at, at a dinner with uh, Franco and it's a lovely one. Um, okay, so now as we come to the end of our podcast, we always end our podcast, Franco, with a few more lighthearted questions. I know I've sort of segued it very nicely by asking you about mm -hmm. your dish named after you with the red feather. But um, uh, now you're a very well-traveled man and you're a very, <laughs> you're a man of the world. But is there one particular city or country in the world apart from either your home countries, if I can say of Germany and Italy, um, apart from those two, is there one place that really is very dear to you? I have to say recently, Lisbon has become very dear to me. Lisbon is an amazing place. It is not as crowded, even though, of course, there are tourists not as crowded as some of the other places I loved before. Barcelona was uh, my go-to place for many years. It is not anymore. Uh, to me, it's become too crowded. So Lisbon is a place. People are incredibly nice, I have to say. And talking about food, an incredible number of incredible restaurants um, you will find in Lisbon and um, incredible people. Great choice, Franco. And now, I know you love the arts, don't you? Yes, I do. So is there a particular sort of part of the arts world that you uh, really enjoy? I like socialist realism a lot. Um, that's something that has become a little more fashionable after several very important exhibitions, first in Berlin and then in Rome. But I like that type of art. Um, it tells you something right away. It's kind of propaganda art, which every country has. So it's not just uh, a given country that has propaganda art and um, even in the US you have that kind of thing. This is the art I like, yes. I know, fabulous. And there's a last question I was going to ask you. Is is there a particular sort of music that you love to listen to when you're reading uh, your students' papers or your writing your books? Is there any sort of music you like to listen to? Absolutely not. I am somebody who needs quiet. Um, every now and then I work with earplugs. No, there's nothing I can do when I work. No, no, not really. Very good. Oh, it's been, no, it's been such an honor to speak to you, Franco. I've, um, 
I must tell you, the first time I met you, you had a huge impact on me. And you really, you just blew me away by how incredibly down to earth and charming you were. I, and I know that feeling is held by many, many people. I know several of your former students, several of whom, as I mentioned, are now practitioners and or arbitrators. You've had a huge impact both in the world of academia and in international arbitration. And I just want to thank you for being who you are. I wish you a wonderful sabbatical, although it'll be a very busy sabbatical for you. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you in person very, very soon. So thank you very much, Franco. Thank you, Gautam, for having me. And uh, the feeling is mutual. And, you know, we had a lot of fun. Um, and I hope to be able to meet you on one of these trips I will take. And I will let you know where I will be when. I look forward to that. Thank you. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email arbitralinsights at reedsmith.com. To learn about the ReadSmith Arbitration Pricing Calculator, a first-of-its-kind mobile app that forecasts the cost of arbitration around the world, search Arbitration Pricing Calculator on ReadSmith.com or download for free through the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.